invite you to come back on into the auditorium. We're going to get started here in a minute or two. For keeping us uh, current on key events. Today, the topic, our core distinctive, biblical authority. Plus, he'll open with an update about our Northeast School of Theology and Ministry. So you're in for a treat this hour as Jim comes to lead. Thank, thanks, Brian. Okay, thank you, Brian. Good afternoon. This is the sleep session. I said this at the ladies' event, too, that, you know, uh, had a break, good session at 2 o'clock. You know, someone said if we lined up all the people, pastors have these stories about sleepers in church. So if we lined all the people who sleep in church end to end, we lined them up, they'd be a lot more comfortable, someone said, you know. So, uh, and, and I want you to, to know, because not everyone in here is a pastor, I want you to know that uh, we know who sleeps in church. We, we can tell, and they usually, could we turn it down just a little bit? And we usually know that it's the same people every Sunday, too. I had a deacon in my last ministry who just couldn't stay away in church, wake in church. He was a lawyer. He had done a lot of things. And I just think he was too busy or something. But he came in and, and it was out. My favorite story, I shouldn't waste time with stories. My favorite story is as we're getting ready for uh, a part of the service uh, where um, we have intro and music and different things. This is my last ministry in Michigan. And I was sitting here the music pastor was finishing up, and I had an outreach pastor, and he was sitting right here, and we were bowing for prayer. Pastor Larry was going to lead in prayer, so he's leading in prayer. And I hear some snoring, I'm, and I realize it's right to my right, and there's Will, Pastor Will, fast asleep and making a ton of noise, by the way, for all the people that are around in here. I'm trying to quietly nudge him. We, have, we never let him forget that. Falling asleep on the front row and making a bunch of noise. So anyway, even pastors sleep in church. How's that? You know? Uh, I want to talk about the NSTM here, and then we're going to talk about a doctrinal subject. And because of the NSTM, I want to take at least 10 minutes and, and talk to you about that. I'm going to try to condense the other for you. But let's talk about the NSTM. You know, back in 2014 and 2015, it dawned on me what has even more quickly dawned on Brian King, and that is that, you know, we're having a little bit of a struggle coming up with pastors for our churches. <coughs> Excuse me. Remember, we're... We don't place pastors, but we do work with churches and recommend pastors to churches. We want to try to help them in the process. So it, it just has been a, a challenge. We have 33 churches right now without pastors. So it was about that kind of thing, and I'm, I'm, I'm realizing that we've got to find ways to find more pastors. So we began to pray about it. I remember talking to the leadership team, our trustees, about that at that point, and uh, we knew that some Bible colleges had closed. Some of them had shifted gears with regard to uh, move from, from a Bible college to liberal arts. And so there were some adjustments. And we began to think about the possibility of training our own pastors. How about that? And finally, in 2017, we voted as a network leadership team. I may have the year off by a year, but it was about that year that we voted as a team to pursue this. We didn't know all the direction, but to pursue a training school for pastors. And um, I decided a couple things about that as we were putting it together, and that is that we wanted to do a college level and not a seminary level. There's a reason for that. That's a story in itself. A college level training school, we don't want it to be like a trade school for pastors not training academicians or future teachers, but pastors, how to do good pastoring, what you need to know in theology and books of the Bible if you want to effectively pastor. So we came up with a model. I was thinking of a model that would involve modules. And I asked Dr. Lee Cleaver, who had just, 
in the early, early end of 17, he came to a church in PA, left the school in Clark Summit, and uh, took a pastorate. And I asked if he would, brand new pastor now, I asked if he'd also give time for helping us. He's a personal friend. We both have roots in First Baptist in Johnson City. So, you know, it was a natural fit. He's got a doctorate in education, and he fills in a lot of gaps for me. So we, we went ahead and made plans. We were going to launch in 2020, but COVID hit. So it was pushed back a year. We ended up launching this school in the fall of 2021. I talked to people about this, and I mentioned this to, I think, pastors earlier. I talked to people about the school, and they ask, well, where's your campus? And I say, well, we don't have a campus. We just use churches, you know. Then somebody says, well, tell us about your faculty. Who are your full-time faculty members? And I say, well, we don't have any full-time faculty members. And they roll their eyes, and they look at me like, you know, I'm a little kooky. And I tell them, you know what? We're using pastors in our network with advanced degrees, at least master's degrees. There are a handful of us that have doctorates. There's a couple THMs and a bunch of MDivs and MAs even. And we want them to have master's degrees. But we actually have more than 20 in a pool of potential teachers, a lot more than that, really, probably a dozen more than that, who have that kind of background. But we're using now about 16 or 18 pastors from our network or those who have previously pastored. Everybody who teaches has pastoral experience, and most are pastoring right now. And you know what that means, to speak in kind of mercenary terms, but they already have salaries. That's why the costs are low. Pastors already have pay. We give stipends to teachers but we don't have to pay any salaries and we're not maintaining any campus. And we have no intention to do otherwise. So our modules where where the teaching takes place are Friday nights and all day Saturdays. So you put together 10 hours of teaching on a weekend, two hours on Friday night, and then most of the day uh, from morning through the afternoon, for the remaining eight hours. The standard academic protocol is for every credit hour, there are 10 hours of FaceTime teaching we're following that that protocol. Because we expect to find, and Lee and I just recently talked about this, we're gonna have, be able soon to have reciprocal agreements for those that take courses and can get credit like Word of Life students do in other places. So our desire is to continue our academics. We're rigorous in academics at the college level. So it's not like uh, watching a video or taking a Sunday school class. This involves some work before the module and some work after the module. So it's, it involves some academic preparation. Um, I, I think you can surmise from this that it's uh, not expensive. We don't really have a financial need right now. We have a student need right now. And so we're interested in encouraging more students, men and women, to get involved in this school because women can take the Bible and theology courses, not the pastoral courses, of course, Uh, but they can take the Bible courses and theology. We have some great theological study coming up next year in the spring. Ken Gardoski is going to teach on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Like, that will be truly rich with him. And, um, you know, so we have some really fine uh, people who get involved. Gardoski was a missionary, also a pastor. He brings that same experience. He's formerly on the faculty at Baptist Bible Seminary. So, you know, we've been blessed with that. Mike Stallard has taught some uh, two classes so far. And uh, we're, we're just really blessed with have people in that network. It's $100 a credit hour, which is about one-fourth of what a Bible college cost is. And guess what? We don't have any fees. (laughs) There's no fees. You just pay when you take a class. You pay, you register for a class, you pay $100 a credit hour, and uh, then you, you know, you take the class. And that's when you you, uh, forward some money to us. To apply doesn't cost any money. There's no obligation. 
So that's really a lot of what the school is about. Um, I feel like this is uh, the wave of the future for ministerial education because of its affordability and convenience. We actually have four sites, Attica, Big Flats, Horseheads has agreed to be a site, and then here in Preble. So we have, uh, and what we have also said is we will take a class to any site where you have at least five paying students. So rather than you all coming to Big Flats, we'll send the professor to you. And then, you know, you can take those courses. So I've had some pastors working on that. They say, well, we can get some guys together who are willing to be part of this educational initiative. And we're excited about all of that. It's affordable, it's convenient, um, it's taught by pastors, and uh, we're excited about where it's going. Now, it's small, and that's because it's new, and we haven't spent a lot of money on advertising, but we are, we're trying to uh, launch this still. It's two years old. We're in our third year this fall, so we're, we're still working on all that. How about our students? We have between 40 and 50 people who have taken at least one course with the NSTM, and people go, wow. That's pretty good. Well, that means some people have only taken one course, you know? It sounds good, but we only have a dozen students that are like on a path to regularly take courses. They don't take every course, but we have about a dozen. We need twice that to be truly viable, in my opinion. We're, we're glad to have the intermittent students. In fact, if you want to just take a course, Romans is coming up. Romans will be taught in January, I think January, February. If you want to take the book of Romans? You're welcome. Anybody in here is welcome to come take the book of Romans. Well, some people take me up on that and they take a Bible book course and maybe in, you know, in 2039, they'll take another one. Uh, but the reality is we're happy if you want to do that too. We also have a mission that includes uh, not just training pastors, but training people in the churches who teach Sunday school and lead and would like to sharpen themselves in some area of theology or doctrine. So that's a, the, and there's one final mission. Our main mission, raise up pastors. Second mission, help the churches with training for some of their leaders. Third mission is ongoing education for pastors because we teach some things that you never got in Bible college. Uh, we have 48 hours of Bible and theology and practical ministry, which is more than any Bible college in the country offers, 48 hours of those things. We don't have the humanities, and we're not degree-granting. So you would have to supplement that at a community college or go on. But I think our curriculum, and I'm biased because I wrote the curriculum, I think our curriculum is sufficient for pastoring. We cover the bases for someone that wants to be trained as a pastor and get into ministry. If you want to go into teaching, um, you know, some of those things you need to go on. But we have the, the solid foundation for a pastor that um, I think is necessary. I often think about my own experience. I was educated beyond my intelligence preparing for ministry. I had Hebrew and Greek every semester. They no longer do that at BBS. But every semester, six semesters, and I had already had three years of Greek in Bible college because I went to a different Bible college where they started as sophomores. And I had a year of Hebrew in Bible college. So what do I have? I have six years of Greek and four years of Hebrew, and it's really unnecessary, frankly, to pastor. That's my burden to be a pastor. So we're, we're trying to keep all that in mind and working together to put together a curriculum that will, will help us with that. So here's what you can do. You can pray for Dr. Lee and myself as we lead the school. We appreciate your prayers for all that. Uh, pray for our board. We have a board of individuals that's, that help to guide the institution and give input for Lee and myself. If you're a board member, would you stand? We have some board members in here. Would you stand? See, here are some people you could talk to about the... NSTM also, and this isn't the, the whole group, but uh, we're thankful for our board members. We meet twice a year. 
talk about the ongoing ministry of the Northeast School of Theology and Ministry. But here's the third thing. Help us to locate students. Help us be the people that encourage students to uh, be involved in the NSTM. There's a difference between making announcements in your church. Or I love it when people, they, they love to applaud the NSTM. Oh, this is a great ministry. Oh, this sounds so good. But we appreciate the encouragement, but what we need is students. And we don't need students because of the money. That's not our push. We need students because we need pastors. That's why we need students. We need more pastors for our churches. So we're burdened that, that people will get involved with us so they can get this kind of training because we just need, and by the way, the problem with pastors and the dearth of pastors isn't just Baptists. It's across, it's cross-denominational, this problem. Fewer people going into ministry, fewer men in our case, going into pastoral ministry. So uh, there's a lot of reasons for that. I could talk about that for a long time too. But you could help us by inviting, don't just announce, but by looking for young men or second career men who have a sensitivity to serving God would consider a pastorate and say, you should take some courses at the NSTM. And then you might need to go with them. Mike Paris is smiling. That's what he does. He takes guys and brings, and so does Tom Rofe. They, they bring guys who need to, they go with them and enjoy the fellowship on the way and they take a course. And sometimes uh, some of our pastors have done that too, to encourage younger men to be involved in that so they don't have to go alone. So if you could think about those things. Last thing that I want to mention is that we have uh, two classes coming up. The one class is on the book of Isaiah, and Chris Bosniak will be teaching at Big Flats a section of Isaiah, and Mike Paris over here, Chris is back there, Mike Paris is over here, he's going to be teaching, these are some of our faculty guys, Uh, Mike is going to be teaching in Attica, so he can walk to the class, you know, and he's going to be teaching that class in Attica. It is the 10th and the 11th, is is that right, the 10th and the 11th of November, and then the 8th and the 9th of December. So it's a two-weekend deal. Since it's a two-credit-hour course, it's 20 hours. You know what? Isaiah was the magisterial prophet. I mean, wow. I don't think 20 hours is enough, really, but these guys are going to have to do it in 20 hours. But uh, 20 hours of, of teaching. Uh, over two weekends. So the book of Isaiah, a great book. The, the second class we're offering is unfortunately at the same time. And I am teaching that class right here. Uh, Lee Cleaver was going to be here, but you know, he came down with COVID again. You might want to pray for him. He came down with COVID a couple days ago, and I understand he's doing okay, but it's always a little scary because some of your immunity after six weeks on a ventilator uh, a couple years ago. This is pretty serious for him. But he was going to come. This was going to be his big push. He's going to come back here for the class with Jim in November, December. So I, I have to toot my own horn by saying, hey, why don't you come and join me? Um, and love to have you. You may be a deacon or a leader in your church. Uh, we're going to talk about the doctrine of the church, ecclesiology, and we're going to talk particularly about the marks, biblical marks of Baptist churches, why we do the ordinances the way we do, why we believe in freedom of conscience, why, what the priesthood of all believers means. We're going to talk about what these concepts mean from the Scripture. A lot of us know what we do. Sometimes we don't know why we do it. So that's the emphasis of that. Well, that's a long advertisement for the uh, NSTM. Out on the table, there's a lot of information out there. So help yourself. Schedules on into the rest of the year. But I'm serious about ladies 
as well as men. We have a number of ladies that have taken courses. Jeannie teaches a course in June, and she had nine ladies for that, but we have some that come to the other classes as well. And um, it, co it coincides with what I said at the Renew Conference. In both conferences that Jeannie and I attended, I said, my theme was in my workshop, every woman a theologian. I don't mean a stuffy technical understanding, but to understand Bible doctrine for themselves. We, we can't leave that to the men alone. Women need to know what they believe and understand basic doctrine. So that's what we're talking about for that. Um, I invite you to come to one of those classes and you can go online and uh, find out more about it. All right? Let's pray. I want to talk about this topic in a half hour. Lord, thank you for our time together to talk about doctrinal themes, and I pray that you'd guide us as we address an important one, and that, that we'd be open to hear from you and know how to apply it in Jesus' name. Amen. For, for 12 years, from 2012, that's when this started, counting 2012, it's been 12 of these, that I have been teaching at the Fall Conference these doctrinal thinkubators where we get to focus on the doctrinal foundations for what we believe as a network of churches. Um, it's an important theme that I, I chose to emphasize from the beginning rather than preaching sermons, but just to have a chance to review with you some of the doctrinal parameters that mark our movement and generally our types of churches. Why do that? Because doctrine matters. Doctrine is the foundation of godly living. You can't act right if you don't believe right. And so the issue of doctrine is, is just a really important issue from that perspective. Also, it's important not only in our personal lives, but also in church's ministry. God's intention from, from the beginning was that the church would be doctrinally driven. 1 Timothy 3.15, the church is described as the pillar and ground of truth. Then the church began after Peter's great message and people got saved and they were instructed what should be the characteristics of the church. And there in verse 42, Acts 2, it says that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. They're following up on what Christ has said in the Great Commission. You know, doctrine's in the Great Commission. Go ye therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you. The word teaching there means indoctrinating. Now, that has a negative connotation, but that's what it says. Indoctrinating them. So you lead them to Christ, they identify with the church and what's happened in their lives through the ordinance of baptism, and then we teach them. We teach them doctrine. Doctrine is important. It's the foundation for life and ministry. So in the church... I probably don't have time, but jot down if you're taking any notes, 2 Timothy 1.13 and 14 and Titus 1.9. Titus 1.9 tells pastors, elders, holding fast the faithful word. Titus 1 and verse 9. 2 Timothy 1.13 talks about guarding the deposit of truth. So the responsibility of the church. We also need to have thinkubators and think about this because there is doctrinal slippage and the diminishing of doctrine in our day, sound doctrine. And we of all people expect to be guardians of truth and doctrine. It's been my passion and my desire that uh, during my tenure in leadership, and Brian joins me in this, we would emphasize sound doctrine because what you don't teach and what you don't defend, you lose. D.A. Carson said years ago, he made this statement, one generation believes something. He was talking about doctrinal truth. One generation believes something. The next generation assumes it. And then the next generation denies it. Those doctrines not worth teaching or not worth defending soon become doctrines not worth believing. And so we need to, in our churches, teach doctrine. We need to teach Bible doctrine. 
We need to communicate. Doctrine is, by the way, just the word teaching in the New Testament. We need to teach the propositional truths about God and you and me and what God's created in this world and what our responsibilities are and the person of Christ and his coming again and the heavenly hope. There's teaching about all those things. That's doctrine. We need to be doctrinal teachers in our churches and we need to emphasize the importance of doctrine. So that's what I'm trying to do. And um, today we want to talk about, and it'll come up on the screen, we want to talk about scriptural authority, the biblical authority. Brian mentioned this issue of biblical authority. Sorry, I don't have an outline, so, and I'm going to do it a little differently because I don't have the slide points animated. So I'm going to, it was already put in Proclaim and I couldn't change it. So, um, I'm going to dump on you a little bit. But first of all, we're going to talk about biblical authority, which is the core that underlies all the other things. We talked last time. Could you go back to the main one first? Uh, we want to talk about doctrine because it's, it's the foundation. Notice it says the core distinctive. What do I mean that? Because... All the other things we've talked about through the years, whether that's biblical inerrancy, whether that's last year we talked about universalism, the belief in universalism. You know what? Universalism, and we're talking about evangelical universalism, is really a denial of what the Bible clearly says about the sinfulness of humanity and God's purposeful salvation plan. It's about what the Bible says about those things. So this is an important thing. And, you know, uh, we began as a network with an emphasis upon Bible doctrine rooted in biblical authority. A group of pastors got together in Ithaca, and this network was formed, and it was based upon doctrine. But you know what? In the 1920s to 40s, in those years, the battle was with liberals. Outright denial of biblical authority, the virgin birth, the, the, the inerrancy of scripture, and, and, and many, the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Christ. But the battle is different today about biblical authority. I was reminded of it when I read about the new unconditional conference that was held at North Point Community Church in Georgia where Andy Stanley is a pastor. It was uh, billed as an event to approach to supporting parents and their gay and transgender children in churches from the quieter middle space. I could read some quotes from Andy Stanley, who's had some issues before. We understand that. But he has been solidly evangelical, even with some fringe comments he's made that baffle us. But they had this conference in it was at the beginning of this month, I believe. The beginning of this month, down in Georgia. One person wrote, if I wanted to quietly mainstream pro-gay theology to the evangelical church, I would build this conference. She had two speakers, two men of the 14, were married to other men. The North Point event, uh, Lynn Vincent, uh, an editor at World Magazine, wrote, the North Point event is part of a larger trend in evangelicalism in evangelicalism. Churches that once held firmly to Scripture are now headed down the same road that gutted mainline Protestantism. He's talking about back in the 100 years ago. They're headed down the same path, evangelicals, many of them. But notice, once held firmly to Scripture. What do they mean? To scriptural authority. To scriptural authority. Let no one doubt that the Bible is not ambiguous about God's design for men and women and marital union. There's no gender confusion with God or in the scripture. In the beginning it says, male and female created he them. Or about sexual expression. In Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4, marriage is honorable in all and the marriage bed undefiled, but adulterers, in the old translation is whoremongers, God will judge. Or Paul's words to the Thessalonians, this is the will of God, even your sanctification that you abstain from sexual morality. Can there be any doubt about what God believes and what God expects of us from his word? Where the doubt comes is about the truthfulness of the word in the light of the culture, in the light of what's happening. We're coming back to reinventing 
the truths of Scripture. What we're really doing is moving away from biblical authority. I could give other examples. I had them listed here, but um, in the light of time, I won't do that. Let's go to this next screen. And, and I want to just talk basically about an overview of this. When we talk about the authority of Scripture, we refer to it in two senses. The first sense is the nature of Scripture itself. When we believe the Bible is authoritative, it's rooted in what we believe about what the Bible is. Dare I take you to this very familiar passage in 2 Timothy? I want you to see it again. 2 Timothy chapter 3. This is the foundation. This text is a foundation for biblical authority. Because in verse 16 of 1 Timothy 3, a verse you know well, it reads, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training, and righteousness. All Scripture is inspired, the old translations say. Somewhat misleading, actually, to say inspired. It kind of sounds like God infused something into the text of Scripture. But God-breathed is the literal translation of theopneustos, the word that's used here with regard to inspiration. It literally means God breathed. The ancients understood that we speak as air, breath, goes over our vocal cords. And we form words, and we pronounce words, and we communicate that way. All they were saying was, when they said the scriptures God breathed, they were saying it's God's very words. It's God spoken. It comes from him. It's his word. And it says all Scripture. I don't have time to talk about the authentication of the New Testament other than to say, obviously the Old Testament is in view, but Peter authenticated Paul's writings as Scripture at the end of 2 Peter. And Paul quoted in chapter 5 of 1 Timothy two verses that he referred to as Scripture. One was from the book of Deuteronomy and one was from Luke chapter 10, equating now the Gospels as scripture all scripture for our view all 66 books of the bible are god's word if they're god's word we're talking about the nature of scripture if they're all god breathed and god given they are therefore inerrant our basis for believing in inerrancy of scripture is the fact that god gave every word and god doesn't lie titus 1 2 talks about eternal life based on God who doesn't lie. Because if the Bible contains some untruth about marriage or about sexuality, then if it's all from God, he must have lied to us. Our belief in the truthfulness and, and the, the true God and his communication in the word affirms inerrancy. And inerrancy means authority. Authority also flows out of, of, of the right view of inspiration. It flows out of God's giving us his word in its entirety. We believe in verbal inspiration, so the words matter to us. That's why we're more committed to word-for-word translations, because we understand that it is verbally as well as as a whole, plenarily inspired this is the basis of biblical authority if you don't take anything else home. Biblical authority is based on the fact that it's God's word. God used human writers. I prefer not to use human authors. There's only one author. The human writers or recorders put down what God wanted them to write so that uh, the scripture that we have in our hands as it remains true to the original because it was really in the original inspiration as it was written down, as it's true to that, we have the Word of God in our hands. The Word of God, the authority of Scripture. Now, almost every evangelical will give at least assent to what's on this side of this thing, and that is that the nature of Scripture is foundational for biblical authority. But where Baptists particularly stand out is in the place of Scripture. If, in fact, it's God's Word and it's fully from Him, 
And uh, it, it is his spoken word to us, then that means that the scripture has an important place in our lives. The place of the scripture is significant. It has soul authority in our lives and in our ministries. Unlike some other groups, and I have dealt with this when we talked about Reformed theology, unlike other groups who believe in other authorities, under Scripture, they'll say, but other authorities, we believe in the sole authoritative truth through God's Word for life and for the ministry of our churches. Now, um, let me just put this up here. There's a box in this next one that just summarizes this. Our conviction about biblical authority is rooted in what we know about the origin and accuracy of Scripture. But it ultimately relates to the preeminent place of Scripture in our lives and ministry. We believe in sola scriptura. In fact, I think we're the ones that are true to this principle. Our Reformed friends actually believe in summa scriptura. We believe in sola scriptura, that is the sole and only authority. Uh, years ago, proving I'm an old guy, I got this uh, Sunday school book from RBP, written by Joseph Stoll III, or the se not the third, the senior, or was he junior? I think it was junior, maybe. So he wrote this book, and it, it covers some of these Baptist principles. The Bible, our sole authority. Throughout Baptist history, the hue and cry of our people has been the Bible only as a basis for our authority. Recognizing it as God's word from heaven, we believe it to be authoritative. We believe that this authority is of such a nature that it excludes all other sources of authority. Sola Scriptura. Here's how, how, how this works out. Now, I'm going to ask them to put up these points. If you would put this next screen up. Can you see that? Um, I couldn't bring them in one at a time, so you're going to get ahead of me. But if you are taking notes, you just take a picture with your phone if you want to keep it. Um, can I talk about these real fast with you? This is how this works out. First of all, we prioritize biblical expositional preaching and teaching in churches. If, in fact, we believe that the Bible is our sole authority, we need to make sure we're proclaiming the Scripture and the truth of God's Word. And we believe in expositional preaching. What's expositional preaching? It's preaching, generally, it's preaching that exposes the meaning of a text of Scripture. It doesn't impose upon the Scripture. It allows the Scripture to teach us. It's preaching that recognizes the importance of that foundation the exposition of, of God's word is so important. I define in the class I teach on preaching, I say the expositional preaching is really when we take the theme, the content about the theme, and even sometimes or often the structure of the text or structure of the sermon from the text of Scripture. So it's the theme, it's the content communicated about the theme, and often the structure that comes from a specific text of Scripture. That's exposition. Launching pads to whatever we want to say about other things from a verse of Scripture is not exposition. There is a place for topical exposition where we, we take a series of texts and expose those texts maybe in a sermon where we're overviewing some topic. But it's still exposition. Exposition is... It has fallen on hard times in churches. The mega church, and there, there's a there's topical kind of preaching that is often touchy feely and encouraging and, and all that kind of thing, but not a lot of content. I went one time years ago to Willow Creek. This is before Bill Hybels fall, and I went there, and there are 5,000 people there. I lived in Chicago area. I've been there several times. He was a professor in my doctoral program in one of the classes. So I, I went there and uh, he quoted some scripture, but he never really expounded anything. And they were probably good things that he said, I don't remember. And they had cloggers too, 
on stage at one point, so I was good. I'm kidding, I'm kidding about that. So they had all kinds of things. They do all kinds, it's like, you know what, I felt like I was going to a show. I felt like I was in Branson, you know? Uh, I, I'm hesitant to be overly critical of another evangelical. I think Heibel's uh, fall is unfortunate, and I think that their, their attempts at reaching people were often effective. But um, it wasn't expositional preaching, and people flocked there in those days. It isn't about the crowds. It's about our faithfulness to explaining the Word of God and expounding Scripture. We teach in our, our classes at the NSTM. There are three classes that we talk about how to do good exposition. So that's, Now, the second thing I mentioned is the central importance of Scripture in our witness, worship, and fellowship. I wish I could talk more about these, but if we believe in the authority of Scripture, it comes out in the other stuff we do, like our witness. And it's about sharing the truths of the gospel, the Bible with people. I, I'm amazed, I shouldn't be, that you, know, you give people the word and explain the truth. There was a young man named Chris at First Baptist in Johnson City when I pastored there. He, he was from the Conklin area and he was into some cults related to, to Eastern religions, you know. He's probably into yoga and other types of stuff. And he wanted to date this girl in our church. And so she told him, you know what? I'm a Christian. He said, oh, I don't care about Christianity, but I like you. you know, you've heard that before. And so her testimony was that she, you know, would, would not date him, wouldn't really talk to him unless he wants to talk about spiritual things. And so she would say, but you know, the Bible says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. He said, I don't believe the Bible. Why am I? He said, well, you know, the Bible also says that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture and rose again. He says, I don't believe. She kept throwing scripture. She'd not been trained in evangelism. She just gave the word. You know, he eventually said, I have to deal with the scripture and what it says. And he got saved. He's still going to that church. He's involved in that ministry. Chris is down there. But what was it? It was God's spirit using the scripture, the authority of the word of God, not, not a lot of other explanation, not just here's the word, read it. We have some pastors in our fellowship, a good friend of mine near where we live, who when he first came to know the Lord, it was about just reading the Bible through, sitting there reading the Bible through. It wasn't a, a great sermon or, or some uh, other avenue, but he, 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 spending in the word, that's so important. Here's number three, focus of our church ministries on communicating the Bible to children, to youth, men, women, couples. You know, that's what it's about. I'm very disappointed in children's curriculum today. I'm not a big fan of purple and some of these things that even the liberals use. I, I think we need to think about what we use and whether its content is related to the scripture. And there's a lot of, lot of curriculum that's cool activities, and, but not grounded in teaching. You know what? I want, to, I want children to be taught the scripture. I want a curriculum that goes through the Bible and talks about the Bible, teaches children the Bible. Most uh, publishers have moved away from that. But be discerning about those kind of things. We need to teach it to youth too. You know, I work with young people at Horseheads. And we have a great Bible teacher for teenagers at Horseheads. He's sitting right over here. Uh, Toby. You know what Toby does? I know I hear him every week. So on Wednesday nights, I'm a youth worker again. Yay! How many people have 70-year-old youth workers, you know? Yes. <laughs> but what Toby does is he gives teenagers, he's doing this in the absence of youth pastor, he gets them into the Bible. He's teaching them the Bible. That's what we need. In our men's ministry, you know, we can go hunting and fishing and snowmobiling, but we need to teach men the Bible. And the same in women's ministry, all of our ministries. If we take the Bible authority seriously. Here's number four. We resist the use of creeds. We have never believed in creedalism as Baptists. Um, let's go to the next slide. I'll tell you why. Here's why. Creeds can be misleading and incomplete. Creeds can be misleading. And how are they misleading? Well, you know, even the great Apostles' Creed 
Where's the reference to the deity of Christ? Well, the virgin birth is in there, but you know the Jehovah's Witnesses believe in the virgin birth. They interpret that, but there, there's a... Uh, I, I'm unhappy with the Catholic term in there. Um, I'm happy with the reference to Christ uh, descending to Hades. That needs some explanation uh, and has been a debated topic. You know what? The, the Apostles' Creed has been worked on through the years. You know, why... why? We don't recite creeds because they're incomplete and sometimes misleading. I brought with me my copy of a bulletin from a church in my town in, in, in Michigan. And so they have this. This is this, the uh, Peace Lutheran Church. It has the order of their service and everything. It's, it's, this is a liturgical church, so I would expect it to have these readings and these kinds of things. But then it's the Nicene Creed, and the Lutherans... Uh, emphasize the Nicene Creed. It would just take me once to go to a church that reads the Nicene Creed for me to exit. Because at the end of the Nicene Creed, it says, I believe in the one holy Christian apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. I don't believe in baptism for the remission of sins. Now, I've read some evangelical Lutherans that try to explain this away, but the reality is that Lutheranism is rooted in a sacramental religion and, and Catholicism that, that uh, goes hand in hand with that. You know, creeds are misleading. They're misleading. Secondly, the emphasis on creeds tends to take away from the Bible itself. I think uh, creedal churches tend to focus on the creeds rather than... I, I, like, to, I like to read the Bible. When I, when, I, when I went out to Dave Jeremiah's church, when, when we had a conference out there with the Jeremiah and I went to the church, and uh, he, he regularly has the church stand up and read in unison projections of Scripture and sometimes lengthy ones. And I went back to Michigan. I said, this is what we really need to do. We need to stand up and read the Scripture. We have all these translations. We can pick the translation we want to use and... We stand up and we read the scripture in unison. When I was in Flint, we did that every Sunday morning, different passages. Maybe not every Sunday, but we got up and read the scripture. I'd much rather read the scripture than recite a creed about the scripture. My favorite author about all this is uh, J.L. Burroughs. This is his book from 1887. This is the best thing that I came up with in a used bookstore in my lifetime. Uh, somewhere out in Michigan, I came up with this. And uh, you got to hear how he describes this issue. He's defending what Baptists believe historically. And this is a Baptist position from, we've not been a creedal people. It, it, one peculiarity with the Baptist churches, I prefer he didn't use peculiarity, but he does. Uh, we differ from other sects in that we have no formulated common creed. He said, but hold it. Do not ever, do not, however, misunderstand me here. I have a creed, or say, uh, I'm sorry, we have a creed, a very full, perfect, and authoritative one, to which all our churches must heartily subscribe in order to gain or retain union and fellowship with, with us. It is no human formulary, binding by any ecclesiastical authority. It is found in no book of discipline, no directory, no church canons, no confessions of faith, no human authorship. It contains no speculations, no imperfections. It's of supreme and unquestioned authority in all the churches. It's more vividly published and circulated than the other, other volume in history. It is simpler and more easily understood and interpreted, more practical than any formularies ever devised by mortal wisdom or piety. It's called the New Testament. Do you say all creeds profess to be based upon and be interpretations of the word of God? We can only reply, we prefer the word of God itself to any philosophizing about it. Baptists are satisfied with it. And I shall not be contradicted when I aver that no creeds, books of disciplines, articles of uh, canons and liturgies and litanies ever elaborated any, by any human erudition, study, or piety can bear one moment's comparison with or be made as intelligible, as simple, as authoritative as the book of God. 
It's the Bible that we communicate. And we have always believed in these kinds of things. I could read further. This guy is a wordsmith in many ways. Um, but Burroughs talks about this. Uh, and uh, as a practical note, recitation can become empty and vain repetition. That would be true for any of us in any part of our worship. But reciting creeds every week as they do the Apostles' Creed in the Catholic Church every Mass, um, it becomes rote and meaningless. They can also be misleading regarding our distinct biblical convictions. I'm not to talk about that, but you know what? They, we're not part of the ecumenical movement, and these creeds have been used for that. Let me say finally, look, I... I I recognize through history that creeds have played a part in, in understanding uh, crucial points in church history. But they have no authority. No authority. And they're misleading and sometimes uh, incomplete. Let's go to the next one here. I'm, I'm, I realize my time. We further resist the authoritative use of confessions and directors from synods and general assemblies and historical church fathers that often replace biblical authority. Um, let me say that what happens when you have multiple authorities? Secondary authorities become primary authorities. Unfortunately, that's what happens. All of these churches in other denominational groups that believe in the Bible, but they, they'll talk about the supreme authority of the Scripture. But when the Scripture doesn't really make it clear, they add their, their confessions. I think I showed you before. I had this book, Understanding the Lord's Supper. And there's a chapter in here on the Reformed view of the real presence of Christ. Did you hear me? The real presence of Christ in the elements. That's a little obscure. The spiritual presence of Christ, that's the position of Presbyterians. I try not to be critical, but you need to know what you believe. You know why we don't believe? There's one reason why we don't believe in the real presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper. Because it can't be found in Scripture. It has no scriptural basis. It's Calvin that believed that. It's in Calvin's Institutes. So there's a chapter here defending it by a guy from Calvin Seminary. And uh, it's the Reformed View. John Hesselink. This is quite a chapter. There's not a single reference to the Bible in here. But there's a ton of things from Calvin and from the Westminster Confession. I'm not interested in the Westminster Confession here. I'm interested in what the Bible says. And we believe in the Lord's Supper as a memorial service because Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. You should read R.C. Sproul in his book, trying to explain the real presence of Christ. And I think Sproul is a master at explaining hard things in simple ways. But he just kind of, he's trying to, it's really the most, uh, the most uh, confusing that he's, I've ever read him, but he's trying to support this view, you know, and he's, he kind of goes all over the place trying to make it happen. But um, here's another one on baptism. I know I need to wind down. I asked Brian if I could have a few minutes over. Thank you. Yeah. Um, understanding four views on baptism. I like these books because I get to read the other point of view and understand what they say. So Tom Nettles, who's a Southern Baptist, he responds to Richard Pratt's reform view on, the, on um, uh, this issue of baptism. Okay, I just got gonged. Um, anyway, and, and I like the way he starts his, first, the, his response to the reform view. Listen to this. This is insightful from Nettles. He's the one that writes the uh, Baptist view of baptism. I appreciate the clarity with which Dr. Pratt presents the Reformed view of sacramental baptism. Sacramental should throw you off right away when you read that. You know, baptism and the Lord's Supper aren't sacraments. Forget the New City Catechism. It's Reformed. It has a Reformed edge to it. 
And uh, it says they could be sacraments or ordinances. No, they're not sacraments. It comes from the Latin, the conveyance of grace. There's no conveyance of grace. We believe the ordinances are not sacramental. As one would expect, his discussion, this is Nettles writing, includes much from the confessions of the Reformed tradition. He says a lot of his defense is from this. At times, he seems to treat his confessional tradition as much as Rome treats the magisterium of the Roman church. To understand how baptism relates to covenant, we must delve further into Westminster's theology, he writes. He's talking about Westminster, uh, the Westminster Confession. From 1600 and whatever it is. Surely Westminster is not a co-authority with Scripture. He says he's trying to defend his point by all these quotes from the Westminster Confession in true Presbyterian fashion. It's not a co-authority with Scripture. It provides us with interpretive possibilities in a large number of doctrinal areas. It may serve as a standard by which Presbyterian ministers are tested for ordination, but it cannot be treated as an authority in doctrinal discussions. Though I have sober respect for the Westminster Confession, I do not believe that it is an authority that can explain something that the Bible cannot. That's an important point to make. We can talk more about that. Um, let's look at six. We derive our beliefs about how a local church functions and is organized from Scripture rather than denominational books of order. So I, I remember looking at my constitution in my last pastorate and going, some of this isn't really rooted in Scripture. We need a greater emphasis on pastoral authority. We need to, we, we need to affirm the, the work of deacons. We need to make sure we emphasize congregationalism in there. I even was uncomfortable with transferring members. You know, Baptists don't transfer members. You need to come to my class. We'll talk about that. That's a, it's an important thing. Um, so I think we need to look at our, our, um, look at our constitutions even and consider how some of those things uh, work out. It's really important. Um, I could talk about other things related to constitutions. Two officers, their ordinances and not sacraments. Um, anyway, last point, number seven, is still up there. We encourage individual reading and study of the scripture and the value of Bible doctrine for all Christians. We need to know what we believe, men and women, we need to know. And we need to therefore be students of the scripture. If it's God's word and it's supreme authority, then we need to get into it and be studying the scripture for ourselves and considering all those things um, as a foundation for what we believe. One final thing. Tonight we're going to have some people from, uh, I'm going to conclude with this. Tonight we're going to have some people from the Thompson Baptist Church because the Thompson Baptist Church wants to join our fellowship. Does that ring any bells for you, the Thompson Baptist Church? Um, it's the church where Ken and Carl Elgina grew up, who have had some impact even in our state. Ken was a pastor at, at uh, Park Avenue Baptist Church years ago in Binghamton before he went out to Michigan and pastored the, the same church I pastored there in Michigan some years later. Uh, Ken was a mentor to me in many ways. When I was in seminary, he had come from Michigan and was part of the faculty of Baptist Bible Seminary when he came back at that time. He used to read this poem. I remember, I can picture him reading it. Um, he had some poems that he used again and again when I heard him speak. I, I, you know, we're not really into poems today like the old preachers were, three points in a poem. Um, I'm not sure he was, but I do think, I love this, so I saved it because I can hear him reading it when I read it called my old Bible. And it reads, though the cover is worn and the pages are torn and the, though places bear traces of tears, yet more precious than gold is this book worn and old that can shatter and scatter my fears. This old book is my guide, tis a friend by my side, it will lighten and brighten my way. And each promise I find soothes and gladdens the mind as I read it 
and heeded each day. To this book I will cling, of its worth I will sing. Though through losses and crosses be mine, for I cannot despair, though surrounded by care, while possessing this blessing divine. It's not the book, it's the message of the book, of course. And this sentiment reflects what my father taught me about the Bible. Often with tears in his eyes, he talked about how much he loved the Bible. He was just a Sunday school teacher. I shouldn't say just a Sunday school teacher, but some people thought he was a pastor because he acted pastoral because of his passion. But um, love for the book, allegiance to the book, acknowledging its supreme authority is at the heart of what it means to walk with God and to serve in a local church. It's about the Bible and the supreme authority of the Scripture. Let's pray and ask God to help us remember this. Father, thank you for the opportunity today to, to go back to the Bible and remind ourselves of the importance of this book. And I, I pray that we as a people, attenders and leaders of Northeast Fellowship churches, that we might be careful to maintain our commitment to the authority of the Bible, the sole authority of the Scripture. And that you would allow that truth to permeate our ministries and our lives in such a way that we would have a growing and greater impact for the glory of, of our great God and His Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. We're dismissed, right? Or do we have a song? Oh, Tim. Okay.